Welcome back to Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. I'm joined once again by David Scott. Welcome to the program, David. Good to be here, Mike. Well, today we're going to look at the question of the economy and whether it's or how important it is to society and what role it plays in society. Is it a positive role in society? Of course, inevitably, this will include the role of governments. And getting back to the original purpose of this series of podcasts, this came out of Boris Johnson's announcement that in order to solve the problem of the COVID economic disaster, we are going to build, build, build. So, David, let's start off with your thoughts on the role of economy in society. And and really, I mean, I suppose before we can even discuss that, we need to discuss society and what it should be and the role of government in society. I mean, these are pretty small topics, as I'm sure you appreciate. There are huge topics, and this is one of the problems, because it's impossible to get into a study of economics without realising the huge effects that law has that styles of government and belief systems of the population actually has on how an economy works. Because even if you can get something that's close to a free market system whereby the wishes of the individuals are what drives the system forward, you then have to question, well, what are the wishes of those individuals? And that takes you into much deeper territory again. So none of these things are easily split off. One of the things that makes it so hard is that the economy is so interconnected. It's all moving parts. Everything's a variable, nothing's a constant, and it's not subject to testing in the way that a scientific method would test it. Because you can't say, let's have a trial here, and what we're going to do is we're going to run the economy as it is, and we're going to run the same economy, but we're going to dial interest rates down to negative 0.25%, and we'll run it for two years and see which one works. That's not possible. You've only got one go at it. And even if you do something and you see an effect, it's very difficult to know if the thing you did caused that effect or maybe reduced that effect and it's caused by something else entirely because the system's so complex. This is why you need a theory. And this is why a scientific approach, which is based on inductive logic and experimentation, doesn't work. And mathematical modelling is, at the very least, extremely risky when you're dealing with these things, because how do you know what to model? How do you know what's available? How do you know what the answers are? You don't. So there needs to be some other way of assessing how the economy works. Isn't it amazing that there are parallels here to, for example, climate and other issues, virus (laughs) propagation and so on? They're similar complex systems. And we've seen very clearly with coronavirus how the models don't work. Many people would argue that we've seen that very clearly with the climate science that's been sold to us over the last 20 to 40 years. And of course, that was the reason for the statement that I made in the first program, where I said, you know, there are so many opinions about economy, so many positions, so many ideologies, and some very strongly held ideologies that no matter, almost no matter who's speaking or what statement they make about it, they're going to attack any position that's taken. In all of these things, in virus management, in the global warming hypothesis and in the economy, what do the politicians do? They say, oh, it's very complicated. You can't possibly understand it, voter, ordinary member of society. It's far too complicated for you. Or indeed for me, I'm just a humble politician. I'm just the vessel of your ambitions. We must ask an expert, and the expert will give us his wisdom and we will do what the expert says, so we'll be scientific. This is the answer. And of course, you get incredible nonsense. And if we buy the idea that 
it's too complicated for us and we shouldn't bother our pretty heads about it. And the politicians get away with this nonsense. An example from the last economic crisis, they said, look, we must have massive, massive government intervention, massive bailouts for the entire banking system, massive government interventions in the property market to prop up prices to do all of this. Because if we don't, if we don't do this, unemployment could reach 9% and that would be horrendous. If we invest a couple of billion dollars, because it's always invest, it's not spending, if we throw a couple of billion dollars at this, it'll be like 7% unemployment, which is bad enough, but it's much better than nine, which is just unimaginable. So they spent the money, and this is all based on modeling. We had mathematical models to show that this is correct. So they spent the money, and they didn't get seven, they didn't get nine, they got neither 11%. Now, what's the answer that then comes back from the experts? Well, clearly, the economy was much worse than we thought. Just as well we spent that money or else it would have been even worse. So there is zero correlation between the modelling and reality. And there's then a narrative after the event to excuse the error. If their prescription, which is more government spending, was actually toxic, that would have produced the result they saw. But that's not a politically acceptable conclusion, so we don't go there. Is your argument that any government intervention is going to end up being toxic? Or is it the case that you're suggesting that no politician, or that this might be because no politician has any clue about economy, therefore they can't make any rational intervention? And so let's come back to the to, to Boris's latest statement. Now, I'm highly sceptical about Boris's latest statement because what I've noticed that the Tory party has been very good at doing since probably about 68 months into the, the 2010 Cameron administration when they announced their infrastructure pipeline. And what they did was that they published basically an Excel spreadsheet with a couple of hundred major infrastructure projects that the Tory party was claiming that they were behind. And when you looked at the Excel spreadsheet in any detail, you discovered that 80% of them were unfunded because they required either matching funding from the private sector, who were basically not interested in getting involved in these projects, or actually government wasn't interested in funding it at all. So there was no government funding even being offered for it. And then as time went on through the May regime, perhaps even worse, now that Boris is in charge, what we have seen is multiple announcements of the same money. So they'll announce we're spending X billion on hospitals. And then six months later, they'll announce the same project again. And then another three months later, they'll announce the same money again. And they try to imply that they're spending this three times, when in fact, they're not even spending it once, because the truth is, they're announcing that they're spending it, but they're not spending it. And then there's the other side of that, which is where they announce things like, if you remember, six or eight months ago, probably about eight months ago, they announced that they were going to reverse the beaching cuts to the railways. And they announced £500 million going into that. And it turned out that not a single penny of that, not that £500 million is going to do much to reverse the beaching cuts in any case. But in fact, when you looked at what they were spending the £500 million on, it was feasibility studies. So they had a great publicity exercise where they got people at the end of a branch line, at a town at the end of a branch line, to stand up in a row at a, at a disused or a, a closed railway station with signs saying we're reopening, when in fact they had no intention of reopening because the money was going to management consultants and, and people like this. 
So the question then is, is it ever right for government to intervene? And if it is never right for government to intervene, is that because there's an economic reason why government shouldn't intervene? Or is that because governments are never qualified to do the right thing? Yeah, this is a very good question. I take the view that essentially all government intervention is harmful. The only exceptions would be where government are enforcing contract. So actually having a system where you have law and order, because you need one of the prerequisites for free market system working is that you're reasonably confident that someone with a mask won't come and thump you over the head and steal your stuff. And you're reasonably confident that the person you contract with will honor his contract and there's trust. And one of the reasons that this is very much dependent upon the society that it comes from is if you don't have that trust in the society, you can't then just impose a free market system and think it will work. Because what you get is fast amounts of theft and thuggery. And I think post-communist Russia was an example of this, where a person with the greatest propensity to steal or the greatest number of hoodlums on the payroll does well. You get something that's not free market. You get something that's it's not a free market in goods. It's a free market in bad. So it's very, very bad. But in post-communist Russia, that wasn't the government that was that well. Actually, well, I suppose to a certain degree it was in the sense that the criminals involved in it were in control of Boris Yeltsin. The point I'm making here is that the society, you talked about the relationship between the economy and the society. Only in a society where you've got the rule of law established and you have a high degree of trust between people can a free market economy really thrive. So if a government's got a role, it's got a role in making sure that those conditions remain in place. If they've got a role in money supply at all, and that's a questionable one, then it would be making sure that it's sound money and that it's not inflationary. No government in the world is currently following that policy, but in theory, that would be a policy they might follow. And then you've got the international situation where you don't want thugs from another country coming in and stealing all of your stuff. So you've got national defence. So you end up with the, I suppose, this this sort of typical minimalist view of government. It's about defence, it's about law and order, and it's about looking after the general good of society, but not going in and tinkering with the economy. If that is the role of government, how do you deal with a situation? I, I appreciate that coronavirus and the situation that we're in at the moment is itself as a result of political decisions made by governments. I appreciate that. But let's set that aside for one second. We are in an economic reality here, which is, I believe, I think you probably agree, at least of the scale of 1920s, 30s. 1920s anyway, and probably bigger. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't seen just how deep it's going to go yet. Right. It could be much worse. Right. So my question then is, is the body of disparate private sector organisations from smallest companies up to the largest, are they capable of producing a direction to the economy which is going to suit society best? under these circumstances? Or does it take, in these types of circumstances, some kind of centralised control in order to get things moving in a particular direction, or at least get them started? The answer we give you there is if you compare the Great Depression of 1921 to 
to the Great Depression of 1929. The Great Depression of 1921, you've never heard of it. But what actually happened was an economic slump far deeper than the one 29-30. It was worse. And it hit America specifically. And what the American government did was essentially nothing. It just concentrated on cutting back expenditure, balancing the books, and essentially doing nothing. And within a year, the worst was clearly over. Within six months, really, the the very worst was over. Within a year, 18 months, the economy was back to normal. A less severe hit happened in 1929. Hoover said, we're going to build some dams. Dams are good. Employ lots of people. We're going to spend some money. We're going to intervene. Didn't work. FDR came along, said to the population, elect me, I'll balance the books. I'm going to be fiscally conservative. This Hoover guy, he's off his head. He's spending all this money. He's wasting it. Got into power, said, no, 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 we're going to spend. We're going to get a new deal. This is unfair. This recession stuff, this is unfair. We're going to have a new deal for the American worker. And he spent and he spent and he spent, and it didn't get better. It got worse and worse and worse, and it became the Great Depression. Now, the starting point, the initial disturbance, was less severe than the 1921 crisis. But government intervention made it the Great Depression. So however bad the situation is, my view personally, and I I feel there's ample evidence for this, there's no situation so bad that the government can't make it worse. I'm from the government I'm here to help really are the most frightening words in the English language. And... (laughs) None of the things that they think will help will help. They have different sorts of downsides. Some are really easy to see. You've got rent control and minimum wage laws. Those are trumpeted usually by the left, but this includes the Conservative government quite a lot now. These types of things cause harm, which you can see quite clearly. And then you've got things which are much harder to see what the price that's really being paid. And the sort of first surrender to this from the sort of classical liberal tradition in the 19th century, guys like John Stuart Mill, was, well, look, clearly the government spending money to create a public park, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's only to the benefit of society. And they can do that. And they can do roads and they can do bridges. So they could presumably do Boris's infrastructure. And that's only good. And having surrendered those principles, then the price slowly manifests itself. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So what's happening? So for these things, the things that are obviously regarded as good, so like the nice the nice shiny new bridge, what's wrong with that? Well, for one, you've got to pay for it. So you're taxing the rest of the economy. So you're depressing the rest of the economy. You're depressing output. You're depressing productivity to pay for the bridge. You can see the bridge. You can't see all the harm. How do you know the bridge is worth it? And if one bridge is worth it, or two, three, ten, where do you stop? So what is the mechanism there by which a bridge gets built? Because obviously bridges have been built. You're a structural engineer. You work on bridges. You're involved in building bridges. Who makes the decision to build a bridge? Well, it used to be free market. In Britain, it used to be free market. I'm sitting here in Persia. The main bridge over the Tay at Perth was financed by free market. So you had the local estates... Local landowners and people with some cash wanted to promote economic development in the area and they wanted a bridge over the Tay. 
But what is the difference between that decision and a government making that decision? They put their money into it. But so does the government. No, 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 the government puts your money into it. It's a totally <laughs> different thing, right? Okay. These are human beings, right? This is not the same thing. If the government puts money into something and it fails, what's the conclusion? Well, there's not enough money. We need more power to the government to make sure this doesn't happen again. There's no corrective factor. What happened in the bridge in Perth? They had money from local landowners and there was some borrowing on the free market and they put a toll on the end of the bridge. It's a little toll house. The toll house is still there. And after about 25 years or something, the tolls on the bridge had paid off the borrowing and they took the tolls off and made it free. Okay, let me give you another example then. French motorways. I realise we're talking about France. It's a special country, a special case. Nonetheless, French motorways. The French private companies in France decided that they would fund and pay for the development of a motorway network in France on the basis that they could put their toll booth up for 25 years. And the French people voted for this. They agreed to it. And I would say there is no question that the French motorway system is one of the best in Europe. There's no question about that. Driving through France is a relative joy compared to the UK, for example. But the 25 years for the French motorway system was up in, I think, 2016 or 2017. And what happened? They lobbied the French government for another 25 years and they got it without any agreement from the French public. So that was a privately organized free market infrastructure development project, which then, through whatever you might call it, corruption, is going to cost the French people twice as much as they originally bargained for. So it seems to me that it works both ways. Well, does it really, though? Because what is the motorway maintenance cost? Should that ever be free? Should they have ever taken the toll off the bridge in Perth? Because you've got to maintain it. There's a difference in cost between building the thing and running it for 25 years and just running it for 25 years. So I think if the toll companies have come back and said, well, look, there's maintenance cost in this, but we built the thing for X amount of money and we ran it for 25 years for that amount of money. So we will be charging a third of the tolls for the next 25 years. That might have gone down okay, but they didn't. They didn't. They wanted to put the tolls up, actually. So my point is that, or at least my question is, is it not the case that no matter who is, or what the motivator is for the project, if people are inclined to take advantage of that, they're going to take advantage of that, whether it's governments through their inefficiency running out of money and demanding more money from the taxpayer, or the private company who comes along and says, well, actually, we haven't made enough profit, we want to make more. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, people are going to try and take advantage. But what happened there was a failure to uphold the rule of law. And who was responsible for that? The government. So there was a contract between the French people and the company. And the French people kept their side of the bargain and the company didn't. And it was, they decided, well, we want to cram down. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a classic response, you know, when the Chinese finally turn up in America and say, we see all these government bonds we bought, we, we want our money. What will the Americans say to them? You guys are predators. You're predatory lenders. We, we need a cram down. This is, this is how it's going to go down. There will always be a political response and it won't be to uphold the rule of law and uphold contract. And that's the problem. That corruption is most certainly a problem, but it's not 
something the government's going to sort. It's more often than not the thing that the government's actually doing because they will paint the person who's looking for the contract to be honoured as a predator, as unreasonable, as this or that, and then they'll just change the rules. So there's another downside to this. It's a wedge issue. Once you say, well, you can build motorways or you can build public parks or you can build whatever on tax money, there is essentially no end to it. And what happens is the government starts to assemble more and more economic might to itself. And the ability of any other part of society to breathe in this environment, it goes down. And once the principle is given up that the government can coerce money from as yet unborn taxpayers to pay for whatever vanity project they want, and all of the political bureaucracy and sponsorship of individuals that go with it, there's really no way back. An example for this is early Scotland. Early Scotland, the the government really didn't have anything to do with anyone. The post office, I think, was in operation and that was it. You had the sheriffs going around doing courts in a vastly law-abiding country, so they had very little to do. And the government really didn't have any other connection with the people. And then they decided, well, we're going to build some lighthouses because all these ships are getting wrecked on the shores. True. And lighthouses would be very good. Also true. So they built the lighthouses and they created the Northern Lighthouse Board, in whose oak-panelled walls I have had the pleasure of sitting on one occasion. And they are run to this day by senior law officials in Scotland, including the Lord Advocate. You think, well, what do they know about lighthouses? It was because that was the major government investment into the country and they were making sure they were running it because they get patronage and power. So you give up economic interests, you give up economic control to the state, but you also give up other things. There's other downsides to this. Patronage and power follows the money towards the state. So I think there's a lot of downsides here and I'm struggling to find upsides. If the government protected the rule of law and did something about corruption in the judiciary, that would be good. But that's not happening either, certainly not in this country. Okay, well, looking back through history, I think I agree with you that in the past, it could be argued that Britain's infrastructure development, the Industrial Revolution, was led by private individuals. It was private individuals, it was private money. The railways were built by private money. There were acts of parliament. It wasn't taxation revenue pushing it. No, but the research and development, the development of the steam engine, the development of iron bridges, the development of the use of coal and steam, this was all run from the private sector. There was no government involvement in that at all. Absolutely, yes, correct. And one of the things that that got you is some of these schemes were pushed up to, because they all had parliamentary acts to enable them to go forward, because there were things to do with land purchase and what have you. So there was acts going through But sometimes the railway would take a while to build because the economic case wasn't quite there. And even if the railways are good, the society in the 19th century was still very poor. I mean, the average income for a family in the UK, I mean, I think we're sort of down at a dollar a day sort of level, is very modest compared to where we are now. You had a country that was still very poor, just starting to get some of the benefits of mass production and and industrial revolution. And it's not clear at what pace you should build these things. Because even if a railways are good, you could build it in 1830 or you could build it in 1890. And there's 60 years of economic development between the two, and it's quite a different case. 
to wait longer. And a lot of the railways waited until the richness of the society could actually afford to build them out, as opposed to now, where such decisions would be entirely politically made, and it would be completely divorced from the real economy, because everything is now completely divorced from the real economy. The only tie-in is through the banking system and the Bank of England and what they're advising the government they can and can't do, and the strange world of the debt market and the guilt market. That's the only remaining restriction, but this is quite a long way from, from the ordinary high street, main street economy. That's absolutely right. I'd like to just come back to something you said a moment ago, which was that governments were involved because to build a railway, governments had to be involved for land purchase and so on. Now, of course, this is a very good point because what you're acknowledging there, it seems to me, is that in order for some of these infrastructure projects to move ahead, inevitably you're going to run up against people who don't want it. Um, And so therefore you need the power of the government to force them out of the way? Well, do you, though? That's clearly what happens now. Well, what I'm saying to you is, from the statement you made, you implied that that's what happened in the past as well. Well, that's maybe my own ignorance, because I'm not absolutely clear on exactly what the acts covered. I'll, I'll try and find out for the next one we do, what did these acts actually do? I was aware there was one for each railway, just because I've, I've studied railway engineering a little bit, but I'm not sure just exactly what they were doing. I have to say that, assuming the history books are true, many, many people, the vast majority of people, because you were talking about a second ago about the standard of living at the time, people were actually demanding branch lines because they saw them as assisting in opening up the local economy and bringing money into the local economy. So there was certainly the vast majority of people we're very, very keen to see the railways come to their location. Yes. Of course, inevitably, some people are going to be kicked off their land. And the question then is, is that something that is an acceptable thing that governments intervene in order to compulsorily purchase land, maybe land that people have been on for generations? Well, I don't think so. Just looking at some of the... But, but this comes back to the original question of, yeah. of economy and society and, and what's for the benefit of society. And, and at what point is some piece of economic development, does the benefit that that brings to society ever override the individual? This is a very important point. Because if you don't stand for the rule of law and the entire system's built on the rule of law, if the government can override the rule of law, what have you actually got? You've got a tyranny, you've not got a government, and it's just a case of how bad a tyranny. To give you an example of what actually happened in the railway, somewhere where I do know the history, round about here, there's a railway that goes up the Tay Valley and it eventually goes all the way to Inverness. And when that was built along uh, across the Duke of Athol's land, and so when they came to negotiate with him about the bridges, he said, yeah, well, you can have permission, but I want the bridges to have castellated abutments. So the abutments of these bridges are little castles with little turrets and arrow slits and everything. And this was what he wanted. That's what the man wants. That's what the man gets. And then when they came to do a branch line to Aberfelding. They were kind of cutting back on the cost of the stonemasonry. And they did the turrets in cast iron. So we've got cast iron turrets on that one. And that branch line went to Aberfelding. Now, I, I did a study at one point many, many years ago of a building we were converting from use as a shop into flats. And this had been one of two 
large department stores in this quite small town of Aberfeldy. And I found out a lot about how this thing operated. And it had a bakery. Was, the ovens were still present in the basement. It was like going into the land that time forgot. There was gas lighting and things still in place down in, this, down in the basement. And I found out that the grain for this would come in in the train and in a pony and trap and they'd go down and they'd get grain for the oven. So they were integrated with a much wider economy because the branch line came. And yes, it was important. And yes, you had people along the way that might have their own eccentric views of what they wanted on their land, but they were able to negotiate that. So I will try and find out just what the government were doing on the acts, because that's a good question and I don't have a good answer. We're about five minutes away from being out of time. Have we answered the question, though, that was originally put? Well, I think what we've done, certainly my view, is that government intervention tends to be harmful. I mentioned rent control and minimum wage laws, which are both held to be goods, which are very harmful. I'm happy maybe in another episode to explain why that is. If you've got a situation that the government is going to build, 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 and we accept that there are at least doubts about the wisdom of that, it brings certain questions. How do you know what to build? How do you know how much of it to build? How are you going to pay for it? And what's the trade-off that comes from paying for it? Because the money's got to come from somewhere, or until we have a magic money tree, we believe the money's got to come from somewhere. So how do you evaluate the harm you're doing by collecting that money versus the good you're doing for the infrastructure? Does any of that actually happen? Do any of these questions really get asked, let alone answered? Or are we talking about smiling politicians with a silver-plated shovel doing photo ops digging the first sod out of the ground and then coming back and doing another photo op and cutting the ribbon. Is it only about political patronage? How much do we actually get out of it as a nation? And can we at least manage this in such a way that the benefits are maximised and the harm may be limited? I don't know. Maybe we should look at that in the next episode. I think that is exactly what we're going to do. I asked the question that sparked off this discussion, so it's perfectly appropriate. And those were a spectacular group of questions. I don't know how whether that's going to be one program or 10 that you've just laid out there, but let's see how it goes. So I'm going to say, David, thank you very much for joining me this evening. That's been a very interesting conversation, and we will continue it next week. Thank you very much.